You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. All right, if you have a Bible, please turn to Isaiah chapter 9. And um, uh, you know what? Go to Acts as well, chapter 1. I might take you there as well. Uh, what we're doing today is we're uh, starting a new um, series for the month of December on Advent. Today uh, marks uh, a, a, a new uh, calendar for the church, a new church calendar and the season of Advent. And, and it starts today on December 2nd the first Sunday in December, and basically it moves the church into this period of waiting. And that's what I want to talk about today, is moving the church. How do we, as a church, posture ourselves in the season of waiting? And um, so what I want to do today is I'm going to be all over the Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you and you want a physical Bible, we have some free ones. Ushers can get those too. You can raise your hand or whatever, get up and grab one in the back. We have a couple up here. Um, If the ushers can grab some Bibles for the crowd, that would be great. Um, Ushers, no ushers. <laughs> Everybody's just looking at me like I'm not. I'm not an usher. Sorry. Um, so uh, if we can get some, just keep your hand up. Um, we're going to be turning to both Old and New Testament, going back and forth. Um, and what I want to do today is I want to show you how uh, how the church, how the people of God before Jesus, before the first Christmas postured themselves awaiting the arrival of Messiah, and how the church today is to posture itself in awaiting the arrival of Messiah. That's what Advent celebrates, and that's what we'll be doing today. So if you're in Isaiah 9 in Acts chapter 1, allow me to pray, and then we'll get started. Let me pray. God, I thank you for this evening and um, your church, Lord, and I I pray that, Lord, I'm pretty guilty of... uh, making Christmas about just the other stuff, and I know that sounds a bit cliche, and I know that we all do it, but God, I pray that uh, this year in our church, that you would help us posture ourselves rightly to think deeply about um, the season of Advent and make us hopeful and, and, and awaiting your, your soon return, Jesus. And I know there might be some young uh, followers of you in here that might not know what that means, and I pray you bring clarity today by your spirit, God. I ask today that you would teach us your word, and every scripture that I read, and I know there would be a lot, a lot tonight, that, that they, would, um, they, would, they would fall on good hearts, God, that even right now, that you would just ready our hearts to receive your word, and they would take root and grow and bear fruit. I ask that you would anoint me tonight um, to teach, explain, exposit your word. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Amen. The Christmas season is arguably the busiest and uh, most expensive and most gluttonous uh, time of the whole year. And I don't mean to be a bummer when I say that. Like, I love Christmas. It's like my favorite holiday, like probably many of you. Um, and, and I'm not trying to be uh, down on it, but if we stop and think, and I know this is a bit uh, cliche. This is what every pastor in all of America says during Christmas. And I won't say putting Christ back in Christmas, even though I just said it, but... Um, but it's, it, it, if you like look at the season and everything that we do in the season, the, the actual season of Christmas that starts like in Halloween pretty much um, and goes all the way to Christmas, if we look at the whole season, like how, is it really saturated 
with the presence of Jesus, like completely saturated with the presence of Christ, and we're aligned with, uh, with a good posture and, and following Jesus and, and surrendering our lives to Jesus and, and looking to Jesus, the season of Advent does just that. That's what it's trying to do. When we get wrapped up in all the stuff that we do, I mean, all of us, we all download the new Sufjan Stevens Christmas album, and we decorate our tree, and we drink eggnog, and we do all that stuff. But what the season of Advent does, it stops the church, all, the church calendar traditionally stops here. And what it does is it prepares our hearts. It prepares our mind for a season of waiting. We don't let ourselves celebrate Christmas yet. What Advent does is actually says, stop, you can't celebrate Christmas yet. You can't celebrate Christmas until Christmas morning or some traditions, midnight on Christmas Eve. You cannot celebrate Christmas until then. The church moves in the season of waiting for the arrival of Jesus. So we stop and we reflect and we examine our hearts and we wait for the arrival of Jesus before we get all excited about Christmas, before we celebrate the Christ child, we stop and we wait. And what we do actually is we, we skip, we, it's like we rewind past um, the time of Jesus to the period before Jesus when the people of God were awaiting the Messiah. And we posture ourselves like they, like they did. We wait like they waited. And the reason why we wait like they waited is because the church today is still waiting. You're still waiting. I mean, we're, we're always, and I think this is a good discipline for the church to learn, to wait, because you're always waiting for something, aren't you? Always. If you are um, single, you're waiting to be married. You're like, oh, how long, oh Lord? How long? You know, Maranatha, whatever. You know, like, how, how long do I have to wait to be married? If you're married, you're waiting, like, how, when do we get to start a family and all this stuff and get a house and all these things? And if you have kids, you're like, when are they going to leave the house to go to college and all that? And you're always waiting for something. And if you've done everything you've wanted to do, you're waiting for, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're waiting for the Lord to return. You're always waiting for something, always. If you're waiting for your career to take off or your startup to take off, whatever it is, you're waiting for something. What is the posture of the follower of Jesus to wait? How are you supposed to wait? Because we're always waiting. And what Advent does, and it seems countercultural and a bit um, counterintuitive, is that we actually slow down during this season. We actually slow down and learn, the church learns to posture itself in waiting. Now, if you're a young follower of Jesus, if you've not heard the concept of Jesus returning, He's like, wait, he's coming back? Yeah, he's coming back. He came once, and he's going to return. Now, where we get that from primarily is Acts. Let me just read this to you. At the, um, in the book of Acts, which is the, the book right after the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts. Acts is basically the Acts of the Apostles, or actually the Acts of the Holy Spirit. How did the, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, begin the church and begin the, the movement of um, the way, as they called it, or Christianity? And at the very beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus is still there with his disciples. The crucifixion happened, the resurrection happened, and he's spending time with his disciples, getting him ready, getting them ready to leave. And then he's about to leave. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, it says, and this is not on the screen, so if you have a Bible or whatever, you might want to flip there. Verse 6, so when they had come together, they asked Jesus, and everyone's, always, everyone's concerned about this This second coming of Jesus. And they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Okay, we've been hanging out with you for several days now, a couple, several weeks now. You, you, you were crucified. I mean, the death couldn't hold you. Are you now going to restore Israel? Are you now going to bring about the kingdom of God? And this is what he said. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons. That's important. We'll get to something like that a little later on. That the Father has fixed by his own authority 
but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, which is evidence of the Holy Spirit, power. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. How gnarly is that? Like, they've seen, they thought they saw it all. Like, yeah, we've seen it all. Like, Jesus crucified, resurrected, and all of a sudden he's there, and this cloud goes whoosh, and like sucks him up into the clouds. And they're all like, they're just gazing, waiting. I don't, the scriptures don't say um, how long they were gazing. I, I like to think that they were like for hours just there, going, and just tripping, and going, looking at a cloud, going, there, there he is. No, no, that's not what I'm Like waiting for him to come back. Because you said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back the same way that I left. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to come back. Nobody knows the times or the seasons. Just wait. And so they're probably waiting like this, just looking up and waiting. So they're there gazing into heaven as he went. And behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they just walk up to these men and they said, um, why, why are you standing around looking into heaven? Which is a dumb question. They're like, um, because Jesus just flew into heaven? Like he just got sucked up into heaven? That's why we're standing here looking. And, and they, he said to them, this Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He was brought into heaven with a cloud. He will come back on a cloud with great glory. And if you've ever read ahead in your Bible to the book of Revelation, you see Jesus coming on a cloud with great glory. So the, the church gets this idea from here and throughout the, the New Testament that Jesus is going to come back in the same way that he came. So the church actually today, you and I, are in a season of waiting. We are waiting for the second coming of Jesus. The people before Jesus were waiting for Messiah to come. The people of God have always had this posture of waiting, have always had this posture of how long, O Lord, when will you come? Come, O come, Emmanuel. That has been the cry of the people of God forever, before Jesus and after Jesus. And what Advent does, it stops the church and says, stop, slow down, recalibrate. How are you waiting? Are you waiting? Are you waiting rightly? Let's wait. So when Christmas comes, we celebrate that Christ has come and Christ is coming again. Amen? This is what the church is to do. This is how the church is to posture itself. We are, Advent is a posture we take of expectation. Advent is a posture of expectation. That's what we do. And so what I want to do this evening, and more of a reflection than anything, is I want to talk about the reason why we wait. I want to rewind back to the time before Jesus and talk about the people of God as they waited and what they were waiting for and then Jesus and how he came and how he's coming back again and how the church is to posture itself. The reason why we wait is because there was a promise. There was a promise and there remains a promise. There was a promise before Jesus and there remains a promise for us today. The people of God before Jesus, before the first Christmas, clung to a hope. The people of God have always clung to a hope, and the hope was that the whole world, and this is the, the, the hope of the people of God, this is our hope, that the whole world would be under the rule, the domain, the shalom, the peace of God, the whole world. Now, go to Isaiah chapter 9. Remember I told you to turn there at the very beginning. Isaiah 9, look at verse 2. Now, Isaiah 9 is a prophecy. And the reason why it's a prophecy is because Isaiah said it would happen. 
And it did happen immediately in that, in that day and age. It had, a, it, had a, it had a fixed fulfillment, but it also had this double fulfillment where it looked forward to someone who was to come, who could not possibly have fulfilled this in any other person but God himself. In Isaiah chapter 9, it says in verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a, in a deep a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Again, this is a prophecy. Now, you and I are born into a time where night has been domesticated. Our culture, we have domesticated light with artificial light. So whenever it gets dark, we just flip on a light switch. Whenever it gets dark, we grab our flashlight. We, we're, we're, we're domesticated by light. The scriptures were written in a time where people knew darkness in a way that we do not know and understand darkness. When night fell, it was dark. When night fell in the time of scriptures, in the time of Isaiah 9, it was very dark. When night fell, you couldn't see in the dark, at least not that, not that well. Light was, um, night was actually, uh, and darkness was actually began to become associated with blindness. Night was actually associated with limited vision. So you get lost in the dark. We stumble around and cannot see our way in the dark. In the dark, we often get afraid. Have you ever been spooked when it's dark and you, you, you get kind of, it, couldn't, it can't be like, it might not even be a noise. Just you get spooked for some reason and you start walking faster and you run into things or you just kind of get, you get freaked out. It's dark. You can't see anything and you think you see a shadow or something like you, that's, we get afraid in the dark or maybe you get afraid in the dark. I don't know. Therefore, Danger became associated with night. We don't know what danger may lurk around or what spirits may roam or what evil may be roaming about in the dark. Grief became associated with the dark of night. Mourners have worn dark clothes for centuries. In Psalm chapter 30, verse 5, it says, Grief lasts through the night, but joy comes in the morning. So there's association with darkness, night, and like this sorrow and gloom and blindness and fear. It was all wrapped up. So when Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 9, the people who have walked in darkness, in there, all, all this carries this contextual and metaphoric and prophetic weight. That word darkness carries all these connotations. So it says the people who walked in darkness, who stumbled, who are lost, who are blind, who are afraid, the people who are grieving, the people who are under oppression spiritually, Physically, the people who are in darkness have seen a great light. On them, light has shined. They dwelt in a land of deep darkness, and on them, light has shined. Now, how has light shined? Who has shined this light? What is this light? Isaiah says in Isaiah 9 that this light is a child, that a child bears this light. A child carries this light in. And so Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says... For to us a child is born. For to us a son is given. Do you see the difference there? A child's born, but he's not just any typical child. He's a son. And we'll learn later that he's the son of God and the son was given. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. A child was born, but a son was given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. 
and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts shall accomplish this. So what the gospel writers record with prophetic accuracy is that when Jesus was born, the Christ child was born, he was born at night. So the light of the world came into our world at night, and that is no accident because it wasn't just a physical night that Christ was born into. It was a dark night in government, in oppression, spiritually. And so in John chapter 1, verse 9, it says, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world in its darkest time. The light of Christ, the Messiah, was coming into the world. The true light. Now, what are the characteristics, though? What were the people of God, the the Jewish people, Israel, what were they waiting for? What kind of characteristics would would surround this, this, this Messiah coming in? What would happen? We'll turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Just turn over a a page or two to your right, Isaiah chapter 11. Here here were the um, characteristics of the rule of this this Messiah. Verse 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, meaning he was basically in the line of King David. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. This Messiah, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And the spirit of wisdom and understanding and the spirit of counsel and might, spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. We read this in our call to worship. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with a rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This, is, this was the prophecy. This, was, this is what would happen when this Messiah would come in. But not just government, not just world peace, but look at what other kind of peace this Messiah will usher in. Look at verse nine, 6. Um, verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. How cute is that? The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf all together just hanging out. And a little child will lead them. A little child will grab a calf and a lion and like, come on, guys, and like grab a lion by its mane. Like, come over here. And the, the, the lion will be like, oh, and like purr and stuff like that. Like, <laughs> eat the kid. And, and the cow and the bear shall graze. So the bear and the cow will hang out together, but the bear won't eat the cow. The cow and the bear will eat grass. They'll be vegetarians. Vegetarians represent, right? So like they'll, they'll be eating grass together and playing together and hanging out together. And it says, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox and the nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand in the, in the adder's den. And they shall not hurt nor destroy all in my holy mountain. How is all this possible? Here's how. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The way this happens is that the earth, San Francisco and Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and New York and every city and every place on earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. So much so that the animals will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, and they will know how to get along. This is like the return to the garden. There will be perfect shalom. 
Now, the, the people of God have had this hope in them forever. They had this hope in them as they follow God. They hoped that one day Messiah would come and right every wrong, would come and bring a, a, a peace governmentally, to bring a peace, uh, an end of sin and, and, and iniquity, to bring a peace even to the animal kingdom. This is what they called the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God would come in, and the kingdom of God would break into human time and space. And now you might start to understand why the Gospels say that when Jesus was doing ministry, it was the kingdom of God was at hand. Jesus was doing this. So let me define the kingdom for you. The kingdom of God can be defined like this. The kingdom of God is an expression that embodied the hopes of the Jewish people, that God would one day remove all evil from the world and inaugurate a new, unprecedented age of blessing, of prosperity and joy. That Messiah would come in and inaugurate and bring in with him blessing and shalom and prosperity and peace, and they were hoping for this under oppression when they saw the evil all over their world, when they saw people die and governments holding them down, they hoped one day there'd be a king born among us that would usher in peace, that would usher in shalom. The hope was that the whole world would be under the glorious rule of God. This hope was spiritual and spatial. It was spiritual in that the power of sin would be destroyed. The enemy, evil, and Satan would be disarmed. And all people would worship God. So they believed when Messiah came, this would happen. They would bring the spiritual peace, but also spatial. The world would not know poverty or hunger anymore. So it would be economic. Oppressive governments would be brought down, so it would be political. And the world would not know famine or deprivation, and all animals would get along. This would be environmental. They believe, the people of God have believed that this is, what, what, this is what would happen when Messiah came in. This is what would happen when the deliverer would come. The redeemer of Israel would come in. Simply put, the kingdom of God was the rule of God where God became the rightful king, the rightful ruling king of all the world. See, the followers of God have always been an eschatological people. And the followers of God have always had an eschatological hope. And eschatology has to do with the end times the people of God have always believed that God would bring the consummation of all things. And being an eschatological people meant they waited and they have clung to a hope of a better future. A future where God would right every wrong, restore all that is broken and bring to an end this present evil age. And the people of God have, always, they have not been escapists. Whenever there, there have been people that have backed off, God has called them forward. God has called them to engage in their world. God has called them to be light and peace in their world. So the posture that the people of God is always, are, are supposed to take is to do rightly, to do justly, to walk humbly with our God. So the people of God have, have, have been waiting, but the way that they've been waiting have always characterized, I, we, we're going to live as if the future that, we, that we've been promised is present. Or to say it another way, on earth as it is in heaven. This is how we are to live. So the people of God, um, Israel believed that when Messiah came, he would close a curtain and he would open a curtain. He would close a curtain on this age, which is Satan's time. 
He would close the curtain that's been characterized by sin and sickness and demon possession and evil people triumphing over the weak. But he would open a curtain on the age to come, the time of God's rule, characterized by the presence of the Spirit of God, righteousness, health, and peace. They believed Messiah would come and close the curtain on, on, the, on Satan's time, on the present age, and open a curtain on the age to come. And they waited for this day. They clung to a hope of this day. Let me show you how. Turn to Luke chapter 2. In Luke 2, this is after the birth of Jesus. And after the birth of any um, child born in the house of Israel, they would dedicate him at the temple. They would present him at the temple. And in um, Luke chapter 2, verse 22, this is Jesus, the account of Jesus being presented at the temple. It's kind of remarkable. It says in verse 22, And when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, devoted to God. Verse 24, And to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. It's interesting to note that turtle doves or pigeons were given, were the sacrifice given by poor families. If you could not afford a proper animal, you could, by the law of Moses, offer a turtle dove or a young pigeon. Jesus was born into a poor family. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was a righteous and devout, waiting. Look at This man was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Here was a man who was devout, who was who, who was devoted to God, who represents the devout of Israel. He was waiting for the consolation, the peace, the shalom, the comfort of Israel. He was waiting for Israel's king. He was waiting for Israel's Messiah. And he was told by God that he would not die. He wouldn't die before he saw it. He would see it before he died. And look at, he sees Jesus in verse 28. He picked up Jesus in his arms. I mean, how cute is this scene? And just like Mufasa, no, not really, but... Um, He holds him up and he says, verse 29, Now, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what he said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for, a sign that is, um, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And in there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher, and she was advanced in years, so she was old, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow for 84. So she was young, got married, her husband died, and she's been a widow ever since, and she stayed the whole time in the temple worshiping for 84 years with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up that, ve- that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting, look at, who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. 
So in here, in chapter 2, when Jesus is, is, is dedicated in the temple, you have people like Simeon and Anna representing the devout in Israel, and they waited for the consolation. They waited for the redemption of Israel. There were people of God who were waiting, who were fasting, who were praying, who were waiting for Israel's Messiah to come. This has been the posture of the people of God. Now, what's interesting is that when Jesus arrived, as you will see in Mark chapter 1, the curtain that I said would close, that the people of God thought that would close, and the curtain that I said that would open, it didn't really happen that way. Look at how Mark, and he says this actually very brilliantly in his narrative. He says in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, now after John was arrested, this is very important that John was arrested, part John the Baptist was arrested, and, and then he would soon after that be beheaded. Well, after John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. Now, it's also interesting, it's something that we didn't get to, we didn't really read, but in Isaiah chapter 9, we read verse 2, but in verse 1, it says that in the land of, uh, of, of the people of Galilee, this light will happen. This light will come into the, into the region of Galilee. And so when Mark says, now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. If you read Isaiah 9 and knew the prophecy of Isaiah 9 and read Mark chapter 1, your little, your little prophecy buzzers would go off. You're like, oh my gosh, it says something about Galilee and this prophecy. Like, this, Jesus is coming into this. The light of the world is coming into the Galilee, and he's proclaiming the gospel of God. And he's saying, the time is fulfilled. It's now. The thing that, that, that Israel's been waiting for is here, now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, you might notice something here. And what you might notice is that there's a bit of a juxtaposition here. The curtain does open on the kingdom of God, but the curtain does not close on the present evil age. John the Baptist, a devout, holy follower of God, who ushered in Christ, who, who was a forerunner of Jesus. He's about to be killed by an evil man, beheaded even. And at the same time, Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of God. In Mark's narrative, we encounter a disturbing paradox. If, if as Jesus proclaimed, the kingdom of God is near, how is it that John the Baptist, who appeared as a herald of Jesus' message, was arrested and would eventually be put to death? How are those two things happening at the same time? The way that Mark tells it in his story is Jesus ushering in the kingdom of God as the one who ushered in his ministry is being arrested. The way that Mark says it here in Greek is, is um, Mark was handed over and Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. It's a play on words. Mark was, uh, John was being handed over and Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. They're both happening at the same time. If the kingdom of God is at hand, then why is one of its servants on the way to his undeserved death? Or said differently, if the kingdom of God was inaugurated by Jesus and is really present in human reality, how is it possible that seemingly innocent people still suffer and die? If Jesus has come in and ushered in peace, why is there still sex trafficking today? Why do people I love still suffer and die? Why do, you, why do kids get cancer still? And why do some kids get healed but other kids don't get healed? Why is there still surrounding our world so much brokenness, so much hurt? 
If Jesus has really come in, see, in the first century Jewish mind, this wasn't supposed to happen. If Israel's God was to become king of the world, an unjust government could not imprison one of his followers. And clearly God in Jesus had broken into humanity. Jesus was casting out demons. He was healing the sick. He was forgiving sins. He was showing power over nature, even over death. One time Jesus was casting out demons, and they said, the reason why you can cast out demons is because you are a demon. And Jesus said to them in Luke chapter 11, he said, if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come among you. If I'm casting out demons, it's because God's kingdom is here. The kingdom is present because the king is here. That's what Jesus was saying. The king is in your midst. And that's why the kingdom of God is advancing. The kingdom of God is here. But here we see John the Baptist. In the same breath, Mark says that John was arrested and Jesus was proclaiming the inbreaking kingdom of God. This is a paradox. This here is a juxtaposition. What's going on? This is what commentators call the already, not yet, kingdom of God. The already, not yet. If you can learn a phrase and throw it around, that's a fun one to throw around. Like, why? Why is there still brokenness in the world if you're God? Well, we live in an already, not yet. The kingdom of God is already here. It's breaking into, into time and space. The kingdom of God is breaking into San Francisco. Do you believe that? I believe that. I see that with my own eyes, but it's not yet. The kingdom of God is breaking into all over the world. The peace of God, the restoration of, uh, that God's bringing is breaking into hearts and lives and economies and societies all over the world, but it's not yet. The kingdom of God has already come into history. It's already here. Although we are waiting for its complete realization, it's not yet. This here, folks, is the posture of Advent. This is how we posture ourselves during Advent. The kingdom of God is here, but it's not completely here. The kingdom of God is here, so the church, as we partner with organizations that minister to people, to sex workers in San Francisco, that's the kingdom of God breaking in. But the fact that we have to minister to, to, to sex workers shows that the kingdom of God is not already here yet, not fully here. We do things as we minister door-to-door in the Tenderloin District, showing the kingdom of God is breaking in the TL, but the fact that we, we go there and we minister to the, to, to the people that are, are in, in, in difficult situations shows that the kingdom of God is not fully here yet. It's a both and. The kingdom is already here but it's not yet. And as a people of God, we have to hold on to this tension. We have to hold to these, these two tensions. The kingdom of God is here, but it's not yet. The, the, the inbreaking kingdom of God is breaking into time and space, into history, and it is indeed here. And it's creating happenings that challenge the powers that oppress and dehumanize, which unmask the pretense of principalities and powers, meaning that we will preach the gospel to free people from their sins. We will serve the poor. We, work, we will work to abolish sex trafficking. We will live to meet the felt needs of our community. All of these are signs of the inbreaking kingdom of God. Well, what we do during Advent and what we practice during this time is we practice waiting for something that will come in the future. What we do, and the best way to frame it is this, we live already in the present time by the rule and the justice that is to come. What we do as a people of God, we look ahead, we're going, God's going to do this. There will be a day when there is no more sex trafficking. And guess what we do today? We live as if that reality was today, and we try to bring that reality to bear on our world today. 
We live at, the, at that, if there was, one day there will be no more poverty. What do we do today? We live at, no, that, that is going to be a reality, and we work towards that today. This is what we do as the people of God. We do this. We serve and give our lives away. Why? Because we're just posturing ourselves under a truer reality. Christ will come back and right every wrong, and the church postures itself in that manner. A, a good illustration of this is, um, is, you should probably go see that movie Lincoln this season. It's, a, it's such a good depiction of what this is. There's a future reality coming when there will be no more, where everyone that has been created by God as image bearers of God are going to be equal, and I'm going to line everything I know under that right now. Does that make sense? That's what we do as a people of God. There will be a day when all the rights are wrong, when there's going to be no more crime, and what we do is we try to align our city in our neighborhoods, in our church, under that present reality today. And what Advent does is it stops and says, are we waiting rightly? If we are waiting for that day, the consummation of all things, are we waiting rightly? Are we living this way? See, we can't control when God's going to work. We can't control when he's going to come back to right every wrong. We're control freaks. We wish we could control God, but that's not the nature of the relationship. We want to control God, but we can't. Only thing we can do is wait. How are we waiting? Now, the people of God, after Christ, the church, had this same sort of, these same sort of questions. How do we wait? Turn your Bibles, lastly, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5, we'll start in verse 1. Paul the apostle, in preaching to the church in Thessalonica when he was there, he told the church that the second coming of Christ, the, the soon return of Jesus, is, is, is going to happen. And their natural question was, when? And he's like, I can't, nobody, I can't tell you when. Nobody knows when. Well, what do we do in the meantime? And so Paul basically takes the church and he postures the church in the right way. And this is what it says in verse, in verse 1 in chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, you have no need of anything ha- to have anything written to you. Remember, this is the same thing that Jesus said to his disciples. For you yourselves, know, uh, yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, will come like a thief in the night while people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come on them as labor pains will come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now stop there. You're like, okay, that's freaky. Like Jesus is coming back and he's like a thief in the night and like babies are going to be born. Like what's happening? Like hey, these, are, this is, these are two metaphors that Paul uses to describe how Jesus is coming back. Not like the how, not like the how in the sense that he's coming like, like a thief, like He's going to come and stick them up. We're going, no, like that, that's not the, that shouldn't be the posture of the church. He uses two metaphors, a thief in the night and a woman in labor. And this is why he uses both of these. A thief in the night, you don't know when a thief is going to break in. That's the nature of a thief. Like if you knew, you'd be ready for him. You'd be like, hey, you turn on the light when they walk in the door. You're like, I've been waiting. They're like, <laughs> dang it. Like we, they're going to come, but you don't know when. That's the nature of Jesus' second coming. But... Do you know a thief will break in tonight? You don't know. Will, he, will a thief ever break into a house? No, no, I don't know. So will Jesus come back? You can't just say, no, I don't know if he's going to come back. You know he's going to come back like a woman in labor. You know that baby is coming out. 
You know it. No, no one can look at a mom going, well, you're stuck with that baby in your womb forever. They know it's going to come out eventually. Every mom knows this. Like, hurry up, come out, right? But when? Moms know about when. But nobody knows about when with Jesus. That's why he uses two metaphors. He's coming like a thief in the night. No one knows when. But like a mom in labor, you know he's coming. Those are, that's why he shares those two metaphors. So don't get too freaked out there. Now, verse 4, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day will not surprise you like a thief. So when Jesus comes back, the church shouldn't be like, oh, you caught me. You got me. Like, that should not happen, okay? If that, if that, if that, if that is kind of what you're afraid of, that, this might be a good way to kind of reposture yourself going, no, I'm ready for the Lord's return. The church should not be like, oh, shoot, you, you caught me. For you are children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. And so what Paul is saying is that there is a certain way to wait. Be sober. He's not, talking about liter- not just talking about being literally sober. He's not saying, hey, stop getting drunk, though that should be in there somewhere. He's saying, are you sober-minded as well? Are you away, are, 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 is, your, is your life postured in a way where, you're, where you are waiting expectantly for the Lord's return? Are you wrapped up in the things like the whole holiness of God, being a, a godly person, being a person of prayer, being, being a person that does justice? Are you doing that? Are you waiting that way? And this is how... Paul wants to posture the church. Look at now verse 12, and this is where we'll finish. So what Paul does then, he goes, okay, what does this look like then? What is the church, how, how should the church then posture themselves? This is how he closes. We ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourself. First thing he says, the, the pastors in the church and the leaders of the church, the community group leaders, esteem them. Pray for them. They labor hard for your, for your souls. Like, esteem them. Verse 14, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. So, there are those in the church that are idle right now. In your faith, you're idle. You're not pursuing Christ. You're not pursuing holiness. You're not pursuing justice. It's just, just this on this idleness. There's no pursuit of God in your life. If you know someone like that in your small group, in your community group, in your circle, your, friend, your, your circle friend, friend circle, whatever, like admonish them, push them a little bit. Like get, get, get in their face a little. I mean, it's okay to do that. Don't be a jerk. But say, hey, I, I've, been, I've been noticing some things. Like are you pursuing, let me just ask you, are you pursuing Jesus? And then they say, yeah, like can can I just, how are you pursuing Christ? And if they get very judgmental, like, hey, don't judge me, it's probably a good indication that they're not pursuing Jesus. If, if, if you're idle in here and someone comes up to you, she's like, how are you pursuing Christ? Hey, hey, don't judge me. Like, okay, let me just say, you're probably not. Like, you just, you don't have, you, your heart's not ready to receive it at all. But if someone comes to you and says, are you pursuing Christ? She's like, you know what? No, I'm just be honest. No, I'm not. Pray for me. Let, I'm, we're, not, we're not talking about judgment here. We're just talking about, like, let's spur one another on. Let's love each other. Let's courage one another, as it says in verse 11. 
encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Let's build each other up. Guys, let's posture the church. And this is not just the pastor's jobs. This is our job together. Let's build one another up. Is there anyone who is just idle? But look at the next phrase, encourage the faint-hearted. There's also people in the church that are just laboring in their marriages and in their relationships and in ministry in the city, and they're just tired. You might, sh- you might want to write them a letter. You might want to lay your hand on them and go, you've been laboring hard, and I'm praying for you. Encur- I want to encourage you to keep going. Even if it seems fruitless, God brings the increase. Like, you need to encourage those people in the church. You might need to encourage your community group leaders. Like, I think there should be in our church a a, a love and a respect for the people who lead us in our church. Like, loving your community group leaders. Like, hey, I'm praying for you as as our leader. I know we're a crazy group to shepherd, but we love you. I want to encourage you. When you don't think we're paying attention to you and you're just, like, talking for the days, we love you. Like, this is, this is the way the church should posture itself. Help the weak. Help the weak. I know that there's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of weak people in our church. Spiritually weak, vulnerable people. Help them. Be patient with them. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. I know, I know we're coming through uh, into a season of... Uh, of Christmas where you're going to see people that you don't normally see, you're not normally around, and you're like, I don't really like you because of what you did to me in June. Like, don't repay them evil. Don't, like, give them a cold shoulder because they forgive them. Do good to them. Seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Verse 19, do not quench the spirit. The Spirit of God leads you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have the Spirit of God in you. And don't quench that Spirit. When the Spirit of God convicts you of evil and saying, don't go down that road, don't go down that road. If the Spirit of God leads you to speak to someone, to pray with someone, then do it. Practice hearing God and don't quench the Spirit of God. Do not despise prophecies. As you're praying for people in your life, God might give you a word for them. This might be real freaky for some of you in here. Like, God might give you a specific verse for them or an exhortation for them. Don't despise that. Go up to them and go, I was praying for you, and the Lord told me to tell you this. And if you hear that from someone, and I hear that a lot from people, hey, I was praying, the Lord gave me this prophecy for you, and it's this. Look what it says next. But taste, test everything. Not taste, that's weird. But test everything and hold fast to what is good. So there's, uh, there could be a time when someone shares something with you, like, okay, I'm going uh, to thank you for sharing that. I'm going to test that. I'm going to pray about that and see if it lines up with where God's leading me. And I'm going to take what's good from there. Thank you for sharing that. Like, we should be able to speak to one another in our church this way. This is the way the church should posture themselves. And look at this. Abstain from every form of evil. Church, this Advent season, let's practice this. Let's abstain from every form of evil. And as the Spirit of God leads us, and as the Spirit convicts us. Let's not go down those, let's not do what the Spirit of God says not to do. Or let's don't do what the Spirit of God says not to do. Let's abstain from every form of evil. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and your, and your soul and your body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. Amen. He will surely do it. The church 
under the grace of God is to posture themselves in a certain way. And that way is this, to live a godly life. Let's live godly lives in this city for the glory of God. Not as a way to earn favor from God, not as a way to get our prayers answered, but because of God has been so good to us. Because God has given himself, Christ was born to die. There's a dark side of Christmas. There's a shadow that hangs over the manger. And that this child was born as a sacrifice for our sins. And because of that, let's live out godly lives. Let's resist evil. Let's do justice. Let us as a church during this Advent season pause and go, God, can we, we want to, as a church, posture ourselves in a way that's right. We want to wait for your return rightly, God. And we say, with the church and with the people of God throughout the centuries, come, O oh come, Emmanuel. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are patient with this church, God. I thank you for the gospel, that we're saved not by works, not by the things that we do, but because of what you have done. And may that, Lord, change our hearts. And I pray that you would posture this church during the season of Advent in a right way. I pray this church would do justice. I pray that this church would resist evil. That, God, we would pray without ceasing that we would align ourselves with the future reality that is to come, that your will would be done in San Francisco as it is in heaven, to the glory of Jesus Christ, not for the glory of any church or any person, for your glory and yours alone. And God, teach us how to wait, God. Slow us down during the season. Allow us to wait patiently for Christmas. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Our soul waits for you, God. Our soul waits. In you we hope, Lord. Redeem, set free. God, may your kingdom break into San Francisco. May, you, may your will be done in our lives, God. We wait for you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.